Well, good afternoon, everybody. As always, I'm very excited to have another live interview. And my guest today uh, actually has a very fashionable taste in dress shirts, as it looks like we're wearing <laughs> the exact, exact same, same shirts. That's funny. Uh, Kevin, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Good to see you again. Yeah, Chad, a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't pick up on the dress shirt thing, but that's uh, I got blue yet gray, it looks like. So we've got similar tastes. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. I mean, it, it, we we're coordinated, if, if nothing else. So, yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, so I want to jump into a number of different topics with you. I, I know that you uh, we, we talked before this, you were born in Pennsylvania, you moved to Florida, you've got investments in numerous different markets. You even actually came up with a great term that I'm going to start using is you're, you're geographically agnostic uh, in terms of just looking for deals. So I, I want to get into a number of areas on how you source deals, whether that's deals that you're intentionally looking for yourself, or whether it's deals that are being brought to you, uh, how you go through your underwriting process and synthesize a deal, uh, and then ultimately close it. And and then we'll also just jump into some other topics like what's happening with inflation and interest rates and, and what sure. you see in store for 2022. And I'd also encourage anyone who's joined in live, uh, please feel free to ask any questions in the chat and we will try to get to as many as we can. Uh, I missed a couple last week. Uh, my apologies. I'd, I got a new computer. I had an error on my end. So uh, I apologize to those uh, people who ask questions I missed. We will try to get into uh, all of them today. Uh, uh, Neil, thanks for joining in. Pumped for another awesome interview. Thanks for joining in. Uh, so let, let's jump right into it. Uh, when when you're looking to find a deal, obviously you have to have deals come across your desk. So either you're hunting for them yourself or you've got relationships, uh, presumably with people all across North America. Let's start with how you would find a deal yourself and then we'll get into uh, how you would look at a deal that come, that gets sent to you. What are you doing to find deals? And, and just a, as a yeah. preface, I think that this is a really important question because this is probably what most first-time investors and even some experienced investors struggle with is actually finding deals, whether it's an off-market deal or just or, or a good deal. What are you yep. doing to source deals yourself? No, it's, it's a fantastic question. In order to answer it uh, more accurately, I'm going to go back in the time machine just a little bit and kind of give a little bit of a background of, of how I got started uh, buying real estate and and ultimately it was you know roughly 20 years ago I was literally 19 years old when I got introduced to the the business and bought my first rental property just a you know low end you know starter single family home really rough in a not so great neighborhood and and that's really how I where I cut my teeth and I and I cut my teeth in the single family residential space and you know small multis you know duplexes and triplexes for for a number of years about five to six years. Um, just really trying to get the lay of the land and really more so not reinventing the wheel from what my mentor had, you know, what his business model looked like, right? I just was replicating what he had, what he had taught me. And so um, one of the the lessons that I learned early on uh, back when I was buying these, these single family properties, again, taught to me by my mentor was that the best deals are had off market again, and, and residential off market is different than that a commercial off market, but but they have a lot of similarities as well. And really, what off market means to me, at least what it means to our team, and what it meant back then was somewhat circumventing um, agents or brokers and literally going direct to owners, finding the motivation of a seller, whatever it might be. There's many different forms of motivation, but finding that motivation of a seller. Um, in a non-competitive environment, meaning that there's not 10 other people having that same conversation with that property owner that ultimately might, you know, push that price up or inflate that price to a, a higher price point to a retail price point. So we wouldn't be able to buy for under their, you know, their current market value. And so that, that worked really well. Uh, that, that 
you know, that strategy of sending you know sending mailers you know putting out back then it you putting out physical signs we used to put ads in newspapers you know uh, whatever would get the phone to ring um, directly from property owners to us and we would selectively pick a kind of a target area i think in you know in, in some residential real estate terms they call it a farm area right like i want to pick my farm area where i want to be the sp uh, specialist um for me it was it equated to about eight different zip codes um back then and we've essentially carried over carried over those skill sets when i got into the commercial side of the business first buying multifamily apartment complexes um fast forward to you know i guess the last 10 years we've been buying mobile home parks along with a few other niche asset classes but mobile home parks have been uh, for the most part our, our bread and butter for the past decade and um you know what i saw when i kind of jumped over into the commercial side of things is that it wasn't all that common um uh, you know, for for buyers or investors to utilize those strategies that I had used in the residential days, right? Like literally sending out hundreds or thousands of mailers, putting out signs, putting ads in papers. And so I, I ultimately wanted to see if those strategies would be as effective in the commercial space. And, and they were. And so you know, brokers play a, you know, a very important role in the, um, you know, in, inside of a transaction. Right. And so I love brokers. We do many deals with brokers that are in our industries, but, you know, I always like going against the grain. I always like, finding you know, i'd like to put myself in a non-competitive environment and so we've carried over those same skill sets over to commercial and so most most of the deals that we buy to answer your question now most of the deals that we have purchased over the past decade have been direct to owner um and, and for the most part i would say that the the highest return on our efforts have been a result of cold calling and then direct mail and it, it's kind of flip-flopped it used to be all direct mail you know we'd get about 70 to 80 percent of our results and it's actually flopped over now to more cold calling definitely gets the results uh, whereas people are just getting inundated with uh with mail and you know junk mail existed 10 15 years ago and now that's pretty much all that's in your mailbox because most of the things that we get that are important actually come digitally now so whatever's in your mailbox most of the time is just junking just toss it all away so with that being said um we really pride ourselves on being really good at understanding the, the properties we'd like to buy in, in, in certain respective markets and then building rapport with these owners sometimes over months and years we've had deals that have taken you know five years of rapport building before that owner has decided that he either needs or wants to sell that property so um i don't know if i directly answered your question Chad, but I, I rambled on a little bit there but in any event we love off-market deals and, and that's how we typically find our opportunities yeah, that background was very helpful on that. And and I, I would share a similar story myself as uh, as an investor in my portfolio with a few partners is that a, a lot of those have were off market deals. Mm -hmm. uh, so but we have bought stuff through other brokers, but I, I know a lot of successful investors that typically rely on both systems, though they want to have relationships yes. with some brokers so that they get sent deals, but they're also hunting for things on their own. So I, th I think your background and, and what led you to that was quite helpful. If I could delve into that a little bit further and mm -hmm. and I, I i don't want your secret sauce because i'm, I'm sure you guys are ha, have a system that's that's you're yeah. very comfortable with so maybe you can even just answer it somewhat generically but what message message would you be saying when you're cold calling one of these owners to get your proverbial foot in the door yeah and i, and I don't think there's really a secret sauce here i mean it's just um putting the work in i mean really there, there's not a secret if, if you have basic communication skills and you have a friendly demeanor then what I found is that um, these calls, there's no like special sales strategy involved because the, the motivation is very different. And, and if you own a piece of commercial income property, it's very different than that of a person. Again, back, you know, going back in time when we were buying single family properties, those single family properties for the most part were owner occupied. And 
uh, they didn't produce income. And so if that owner of that property, if they you know, had a drop in their personal income or lost a job, that motivation is very different than that of a individual like your eye that owns a income producing property that maybe, maybe we have the fits a little bit with the property because, you know, our tenant base isn't the best and we, or the infrastructure of that property, we get a lot of waterline breaks and just more headaches than anything else, but it pays the bills. It kind of, it's self-sustaining. It supports itself. And so the motivations on the, the sales side of a commercial um, a property are again, very different than, than that of a residential property. So for the most part, what I found is that, you know, there's always a point in time in the life cycle of a commercial deal, again, whether it's industrial, a mobile home park, a multifamily property, again, you, you, you name it, there's you know, a big, you know, big list that falls into that subcategory of commercial. Um, but there's always a point in time when a, a seller either needs or wants to sell a property. Needs is a little bit more of a motivation, but not necessarily, you know, hey, I'm going to fire sell this thing, got to get this thing blown out. You know, a need could be, I'm going through a divorce. So that's requiring that we, that we look to liquidate this property. Could be a partnership split up. Um, could be some health issues that were unexpected, what have you. And a one is, again, as we talked about earlier, like, ah, just looking to pluck out some of these you know, more headache properties out of my portfolio. Don't really need to sell, but just want to make my life a little easier, not get as many phone calls in the middle of the night, what have you. And so, you know, I kind of want to just get rid of this one over here. And, um, and now, and now I think it's time. So our objective when we make these calls is to simply pour, have friendly conversation, have a continuing follow up with them. And so our, our objective is to get them on that day, call them or send them a letter that day or that month when they've actually, they wake up and they say, I either need or I want to sell this property. I want to be there. I want to be the top of mind. It's kind of like, I like to, uh, re, you know, compare it to talking about junk mail, right? Everyone that's listening to this right now, there's, there's two different types of junk mail you get all the time. I don't care if you want it or not. Credit card offers in the mail, they, American Express has probably been sending you you know, 30 pieces of the mail every year for the last, you know, whatever, you know, since you turned 18 years old. Right. And they will continually do that because at some point in time, there's a chance that you might need a credit card and you might just choose the American Express because it's been in your face for the last, you know, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Same thing with tires in your car. They know they send you tire, you know, tire ads, tire ads, tire ads all the time. Cause at some point in time, they're going to hit you when the day is right, where either your car didn't pass inspection because you need new tires or, you know, we had a blowout and now you need a new set, what have you. Like there's going to be at some point in time where they're going to get you and you're going to think, well, oh, I need to grab one of those flyers out of the mailbox because I get them every week. And ultimately I need tires now. And, you know, they've been sending it to you for four years before you actually need to buy them. So I want to be that. I, that's what we do with, with these properties that we're looking to potentially buy. I want to be top of mind all the time so that when that day comes, they make that decision. They think of our team. They think of me. They think of our team, what have you. So again, I, I'm not, I'm not skirting the question of like, what's the secret sauce? Cause it's, it's, it's really not. This is a business owner having another conversation with a business owner and finding a way for me to add value to them and their business when that timing's right. And value meaning that giving them a fair offer and making it as painless of a transaction as possible. That's kind of what we pride ourselves in. And we've got, you know, references that we share with owners. We let them talk to other sellers that we've worked with in the past. We kind of create this, hmm. This, this, this somewhat open community and uh, space of communication that they can get comfortable with us and knowing that you know, they don't have to take it out to the market and deal with a million other potential buyers, uh, deal with a, a, a broker, go through that whole process and just sell it to someone that they, that they like and trust and that will ultimately you know, carry that torch on uh, for them in the future. So, 
Yeah, that was, that was so very well said. And and you're right. It, I, I guess there isn't a secret sauce there other than the formula is pretty straightforward. It takes work. You have to find a way to get your phone to ring. So people calling you back uh, and, and you just have to have an honest conversation with them about what your objective is. And if you're doing it frequently enough and, and having enough people uh, registering with that, you're, you're right. Someone's going to eventually buy tires. Someone's eventually going to sign up and get a credit yes. card. So I, I think that that was very well said on that. And I, I want to dive into a few more topics on there because I, th mm -hmm. I think that there's some more value to extract. Uh, and and someone commented that our, our thing was freezing, uh, but they said it's good now. So hopefully that's good. But if, if you're having issues, uh, maybe just leave another note in the chat. We'll try to address it if it's freezing on one of our ends as well. But uh, two points uh, that I want to get more thoughts on is, is how are you getting the list of owners to contact? And then when you start that conversation and assuming someone's like, we're not looking to sell right now, we're going to sell two years out. What are you doing to build that into a database so that you can be following up with them? So two, yeah. two part question. Yeah, no, no. Great questions. Um, and as far as where we get that information from, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to speak in more general terms of commercial real estate, you know, every, every different type of commercial real estate has its own you know, zoning type. So let's speak to you know, multifamily apartments, pretty much any county or municipality um, and speaking to North America, I know you're based in Canada, Chad, and I, I don't know if it's exactly the same there or not. I'm assuming it's probably very similar, right? Um, but th there's a classification, you know, for each county as to what's classified as a multifamily property. It's public record. Same thing goes with industrial property. Same thing goes with retail, office, um, hospitality, um, and, and so there's many different list brokers There's list sources out there where you can, instead of you digging through the public records yourself and whatever respective counties that you're looking in, there's, you know, companies that, that, you know, put together and aggregate this data that you can purchase it from a uh, list source is one of the big ones. There might be other ones out there. Um, with that being said, you know, mobile home parks are somewhat unique. Now, a lot of mobile home parks were built way back before there was any even zoning ordinances. And so a lot of them have, uh, they're, they're grandfathered in, um, you know, the, uh, the underlying zoning would not support, you know, the, the use of a mobile home park today. And so it's not as simple as just, uh, uh, searching by, you know, the, the current zoning status of a property to find a list of mobile home parks. And so we've taken a much more granular approach with building our own database. So we've got an in-house team. We've had an in-house team here for the, <clears throat> the past like seven years. And essentially what we do is we pick the markets, you know, we first search by market, right? Like I want to make sure that we're buying in a, in a growing market, a market that has high demand for affordable housing. Cause that's what we provide. And ultimately <clears throat> once we provide those markets to our team, we say essentially go in and we want you to find every single mobile home park that exists. That is 50 spaces or larger. And, you know, there's some, you know, there's some random lists out there of mobile home parks. There's, there's no complete hundred percent complete list. And so a lot of this has been manual work for our team over the years. The good thing about mobile home parks is when you look on Google earth and you look at an aerial, it's very easy to identify a mobile home park from an aerial viewpoint. It's very easy to pick it out. Like when you look at a landscape. And so we've literally had a team using grid, using a grid pattern, go through all these respective markets over, I think it's about 130 of them and essentially visually identify every single mobile home park that exists within that respective marketplace. Now we have an overlay platform that we use called Parlay 2.0, which essentially is a GIS overview or a GIS overlay uh, on top of Google Earth that allows us to see parcel lines and things of that nature. And so we have built our mobile home park database manually and it was, there was no other way to do it. It's a lot easier in pretty much every other asset class than, than that of mobile home parks. And so um, again, speaking to any other asset out there, 
you can pretty much buy a list from a from a company such as a list source and there's probably a lot of others just like that one and you're basically it's going to pay per lead now you know the other important thing to understand is that most commercial properties are owning an entity they're not owning a personal name and so there's a, a couple layers you got to get through in order to actually be able to find the correct contact info you might get lucky and you're going to find some of those properties that are owned in personal or individual names. Those are, those are typically, those are pretty good leads. That means it's a probably very less sophisticated mom and pop owner. Um, those are, we've had some phenomenal opportunities come from those, but most, you know, owners have them in entities, LLCs, corps, what have you. And so we have an additional layer uh, that we go into, which is uh, you know, secretary of state's websites, wherever the entity is actually formed. And we literally dig through the secretary of state websites and find out who the, you know, um, who the managing members are, who the, you know, um, uh, uh, the shareholders are, if it's a corporation, find out who those individuals are that are owners of that property. Now, once we have that information, we go a level deeper. We have skip tracing software that um, that's used by the likes of like private investigators and things like that, that, you know, you can work to get access to. And we essentially go in and find the cell phone numbers, the home phone numbers, the home mailing addresses, hmm. all that personal contact information for each one of the respective owners of that LLC or each one of the members, of the LLC or corporation, what have you. And so that's essentially how we, that's how we built um, our own database. There's some easier ways to do it now, maybe not mobile home parks, but there's, you know, there's sites out there like for example, uh, Reonomy. I'm not sure if, if Reonomy offers their services uh, in Canada or not. Not yet, not um, yet. But it's yeah, so, to coming at some point. Yeah, so like that's really good. I mean, Reonomy is just that. It's it's basically it's like a a, a co-star with a couple of different additional layers of of um uh, of, of supported information in there for people like us that are looking to buy properties or get information and get contact info for property owners. Um, but we built this all manually, and uh, we know that it's the most accurate data possible, and uh, um, that's what we utilize to, you know, again, create this database of folks that we continually contact and follow up with. As far as your, your question about how do we, what, what's the next step after we have that information? You know, we, we've got, um, we've, we've used different CRMs over the years. Um, I'm not sure that, I don't really have a dog in the fight of which CRM is the better one, right? That's not really my forte. Um, today we use a, a, a um, CRM called Fresh Sales. Um, I'm sure there's others that do it better, um, but, you know, I see a lot of folks get caught up into complexities and, you know, the, how many features this, this CRM's got these you know 800 features and this one only has 400 features. I mean, how many are you really going to use, right? Like it, it doesn't even have to be all, all that complicated. You just need reminder set. You need to be able to take notes about your conversations with owners and actually set reminders of when you're going to follow up with them. I mean, it could be as simple as that. And there's plenty of free CRMs out there that will do that. Um, uh, one that comes to mind is Insightly. Insightly is one we used to use probably like seven, eight years ago. It's free and it will literally handle probably 95% of what you would ever need a CRM to handle. Now we've got some other integrations uh, built, custom built into ours to where um, <clears throat> we have some automated follow-ups, um, you know, text, you know, text follow-ups, personalized text follow-ups. Um, we've got a mailhouse kind of integrated into ours to where we can drop like one-off mailers like Christmas cards um, holiday cards, birthday cards, things like that. And so we take a little bit more personalized approach. So we've got some of these you know, integrations built in there that allow us to kind of take it up to the next level. But again, that's, that's been built over years and years and that's not necessary if you're just getting started. So 
Um, I'll stop rambling now. Let's open up for questions. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, both points were fantastic. I, I, I love the idea of d digging a little bit deeper to to get uh, more information. If you see it's uh, owned by an entity, you got to figure out who's behind the entity so you can actually get to the people that are the decision makers. Uh, that's a fantastic point. And then I would agree with you completely. I've used a ton of different CRMs over the years, and I've found that for me personally, the ones with all the bells and the whistles were too overwhelming. Yes. And I, I, right now I'm using a very basic one. It's, it's on the Zoho platform, which we've mm -hmm. customized to be for, for uh, real estate. Uh, but it's, it, we, we use it all the time. So it's, it doesn't have as many features as some of the more dedicated ones for real estate, but it's, if you're using it for like the foundational components, I agree. That's, that's much more important than uh, half-assed using the entire thing, uh, but not using any of it very well. So I agree with, I agree yes. with those points altogether. And then one other point that I really liked is how you overlay on Google maps where the parks are. And I think that industrial shares a lot of similarities with that, where you can always find the industrial parks in any city. They're always going to be clustered together. It's usually a zoning, uh, a regulatory mm -hmm. issue where they want to have all those industrial businesses together. There's there's advantages to having suppliers and customers nearby. So you you could open up a map of any city in the world and you could find clusters of industrial properties. And I usually say if someone's starting uh, to look for industrial properties in a market they don't know, start on Google Earth and and actually look for where the clusters of industrial properties are and much the same way that you are is you can actually do google street view and do a, a virtual drive down the road and see who the companies that are occupying these buildings see what's there you get a pretty good sense of of whether it's a manufacturing city or whether it's a distribution uh focused city you can find a lot virtually now which uh, that wasn't available 15 20 years ago so there there are some great tools that that make things uh easy on that so, so thanks for answering that yeah and i can share what we use and again there's probably other ones out there um, uh, Parlay 2.0 is is the uh, the GIS overlay for Google Earth. So again, Parlay P A R L A Y 2.0. I think you can. You know, I think that's just the website as well. But um, so that that's that's I'm sure and I'm sure there's other ones out there. But that's what we use. And then as far as like the skip tracing, um, there's a number of them. Uh, one one that's probably the most um, you know cost effective is it's called Locate Plus. LocatePlus.com. Um, and then a few of the other more robust ones, you know, I know at least here in the States and some of the big brokerage firms, Marcus and Milchap, Collier's, um, CBRE, most of those guys use LexisNexis, um, which is a, you know, a common, uh, service provider for skip tracing. And then there's another one that we used to use. It's pretty hard to get set up with, and, um, you might have some challenges and it's, it's expensive as well, but it's probably the best dad out there. It's called TLO. Um, it's actually owned by, I believe it's TransUnion. I always, always, um, mix up TransUnion and um, uh, I can't think of the other, there's three, the three credit bureaus is Equifax TransUnion and I'm drawing a blank for the other one, but anyway, it's owned by one of the three credit bureaus. So the information is about as accurate as it can possibly get, but it's very difficult to get set up with. So locate plus is probably the lowest barrier to entry to get, um, you know, good quality skip trace data. Yeah, we'll we'll add those uh, to either the comments or the description after. So thanks for sharing those. Uh, graphics equipment, another great point. Uh, maps are also great for seeing roof conditions. So mm -hmm. it's uh, the, the fantastic point on that is you can get a pretty good sense of what it is before you even go too far down the uh, down the rabbit hole on that. So thanks for the comment. 
so moving on to the other area where you can have opportunities come across your desk. So first is, is how you're hunting for them. And I think you did an awesome job of explaining that. Second is uh, having uh, brokers send you deals, which is another great way of, of seeing things. Maybe those are off-market deals where you're the first one that sees it, that the broker is putting it in front of. Maybe it's just a deal that has been overlooked by other people where you see an opportunity. But you first have to have those brokers sending you deals. So That's whether right. it's existing guys that you've already have relationships with or if you were to go into a new market how would you advise someone to start those conversations yeah it's a great question i think being very clear about what it is uh what your business is and what types of properties you're seeking to buy um that that's the first step uh you know i all too often i see you know folks that are just getting started and they say okay well industrial seems like it's it's, it's a hot sector and i know a lot of guys i know chad he's making a ton of money in industrial and so they don't really set their parameters. They just say industrial is a very vague terminology. They go find you know the top industrial brokers in the marketplace. They somehow talk them into grabbing lunch or coffee with them, and they don't really bring too much value to the conversation because ultimately they don't really they really don't know what they're looking for. You know they they haven't really got a clear enough vision as to you know <laughs> what types of industrial properties they're seeking, um, what price points like you know um, you know do they have good do they have good debt sources lined up that you know tell, take down the deal or good partners or do they have access to easy access to equity do they have the pieces of the puzzle that are going to ultimately help that broker achieve a commission when he transacts that property right like that's first and foremost of, of a broker they only get paid when they transact the property and so they only want to be spending their time with real buyers that are going to be able to get the deal to a closing table right and so i think just having a, a very clear vision as to what exactly it is um, you're looking to achieve in the investment space, the type of investment vehicle, and then you know hone in on a much more micro level as to like for us, like we will we only look at mobile home parks that are 80 plus spaces in size. Um, the, the MSA population, we'll look as low, we'll look in some smaller markets, but it has to have a hundred thousand plus um, population in in the general MSA. Um, unemployment rate cannot be above, it's like 6.4%. Now we've adjusted it slightly, can't be above 6.4%. Um, median home prices have to be above $150,000. You know, so an average two better rents have to be above $1,000. So we have this. Lost Kevin. Chad, are you hearing Kevin? Uh, I can hear Kevin. Yep. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Continue on. Uh, That's something okay. happened on my end. Sorry. Okay. So, no problem. so anyway, we have set criteria. We know exactly what we're looking for. So if a broker sends a deal to us that is outside of those parameters, I could very quickly say, like that's not a good fit for X, Y, and Z reasons. Like we have a very clear trajectory of, of what we want to buy and why we want to buy. And so I think having that um, uh, prepped is, is very important. And then, you know, once you get a broker to start sending you opportunities to look at, make sure that I think, I think another thing that happens is um, a broker will send an opportunity out to a new prospective client, a buyer investor, and it might not fit those parameters that maybe they haven't clearly conveyed to the broker, um, but they don't respond and give feedback to that opportunity. Broker sends it to them um, and they just, they open up their inbox. They see that it doesn't, it's not a good fit for X, Y, Z reasons, but they don't convey those reasons back to the broker. And if that happens enough times, normally just a couple of times, uh, you know, ultimately probably what will occur is that broker might not be giving out that, that potential buyer the time of day anymore because they, they haven't given them, them the guidance that they need to, to, you know, to formulate that relationship. So I think just being, you communicate, often communicate clearly as to what you're looking for. And, um, you know, again, top of mind is everything right now. There are, there are way more buyers out there than there are opportunities, especially speaking to, to your industry. I mean, pretty much any, any, any asset class at this point in time, maybe other than 
you know, hospitality is still, you know, getting a slow go back from, from the pandemic. Um, if you're looking to buy a mall, you might have to pick the litter. Right. But like, other than that, um, there's, there's way more buyers in our opportunities. So like your, your goal needs to be stay top of mind as well with that broker. And that, that means as close as you can get to being nagging without being nagging, right. To, to, to stay top of mind and, and know that they know you're serious and that you're a real buyer and that, um, you've got money and you're ready to pounce on an opportunity when it comes your way. So, and then, you know, I'll take it to additional, you know, one step, one step further. One thing that we have done that has uh, proven to be incredibly valuable is, you know, we'll just like we database properties, we'll database who the brokers are in our respective marketplaces or regions that specialize in that asset class. And you're speaking to mobile home parks. And whenever we do a deal, uh, whether it's, let's say we do a deal with Marcus and Milchap, well, guess what? We, we highlight that deal and we send it out to our entire list. And that list also includes um, every other broker from these other houses, right? And mm -hmm. make sure that we, we showcase the deal, um, what we paid for, it, what our value add plan looks like, what, you know, whatever the business strategy is around that opportunity. We also maybe highlight the rest of our portfolio, other markets that we own in. Um, just any other details that are relevant that might pique the interest of a broker to reach out to us when they have an opportunity that might fit some of those parameters that we've outlined on that email. And we'll do the same thing if we buy an off-market deal. Um, if we buy an all, you know, directly to owner, we'll make sure that we literally highlight that deal. We send it out to our entire list. We'll po post it on LinkedIn. And I know that you know it's getting the eyeballs of, of the brokers that are in our space. And if they might not have given me the time of day before, um, you know, after seeing two or three deals transact with our company that they weren't in the middle of, there's a good chance that they're going to reach out and and probably have a, uh, a conversation or you know they'll take my phone call when I call them the next time around because they know that we're we're players we know that we'll get the deal done and that they'll ultimately get paid and we won't waste their time or be tire kickers. That is honestly the best advice I've ever heard for investors that want to talk, talk to brokers. Without question, the best advice. If I could summarize, let me know if I missed anything, because I, I really want to emphasize that because there's a ton of value that every investor should be using this as a roadmap. First, you have to have a value proposition. Clearly, clearly describe what you're, sorry, a vision. You need to clearly describe what you're looking for in the property as, as particularly as possible. You need to uh, be conveying this to brokers uh, and also giving feedback to them if they send you a property on why that didn't work or why it didn't work. So there's an ongoing two-way conversation. You want to stay in touch with them without nagging, but just that top of mind awareness as three and then four, which I suppose piggybacks on number three is, is, uh, it, displaying it on social media or however you could do it. If you have a mailing list, uh, mm -hmm. without bragging about it, but just actually just describing a deal that you just did and, and taking advantage of the fact that people see this. And if I were to see, if I was working in that space and I saw Kevin just did a deal with my competitor, that's going to make it a lot more, uh, easy for me to say, well, hey, I got an opportunity for you to, to reach out. Does that summarize those four points yeah, pretty well? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, we actually closed a couple of big deals at the end of, um, December, um, uh, in the mobile home park space, uh, December, 2021. And we just happened to have our national industry conference, um, last week in Orlando where all the you know, big brokers are there. And I can't tell you how many bro you know, so the two deals we closed, they were direct to owner and many, you know, it, it, they were in Chicago, Chicago areas. I mean, ma major market and, um, the owner owns other properties. All the brokers know this owner and just no one had been able to, you know, to formulate that relationship with that owner to get a, you know, an you know, exclusive listing. And so 
I can't tell you more, more than a handful of brokers came up to me, many, which I know a number of others. I didn't know that were on a team. Maybe I knew they like the lead person, but I didn't know some of their associates, but also like, many people came up to me and, uh, and, and, and referenced those two deals um, that they had, you know, they knew Ken, the owner and had been trying to talk to him for years and this, that, and the other, and just really impressed that we got those deals to the, uh, the closing table. Uh, and, and ultimately they never had the opportunity to do so. So that put us in a different light in their eyes and, uh, that, that we, you know, we'll get things done. Um, hell or high water, we will get it to the closing table no matter what it takes. And so it just, um, it was proof of concept there for sure. <laughs> well, and what's, what's beautiful about this conversation so far from my, my standpoint, and, and I would suggest that anyone that's listening, whether they're inexperienced or, or considering being an investor, is if you take those two things that you just described, one, have a system for finding off-market deals, and you've gone through that in pretty good detail. And then second, have a system for getting brokers to send you properties. You're mm -hmm. going to see a ton of opportunities that takes work. It takes initiative and, and it takes a commitment to wanting to do it. But if you're doing those two things, you're going to see so many deals and opportunities that, that you're going to have a hard time actually passing on some things because you're just going to see so many great deals. So I, I, I would take those two things that, that Kevin mentioned to heart. I, I think that that is very profound wisdom. And I, I, I think the second part uh, of where I wanted to take this conversation was now that you, now that there's deals on your table. So we discussed how you can actually get deals coming across your desk. What do you do with these deals next? So how do you go through the underwriting process? How do you look at it from an investment standpoint? And I think we could get into like a few different areas on, on like at a high level, like our, like what, what's your 30,000 square, 30,000 square feet. I always think in square feet, <laughs> your, your 30,000 foot view uh, on how you'd look at a deal quickly. And then once you dive into it further, yeah. what process you go to. Uh, so I just want to give you a second to, to think about that because there's a few comments I just wanted to, uh, yeah. to and one great question as well. Uh, first, uh, from Beverly. Oh, can you pull up the uh, one from Beverly? I love this point. Uh, celebrate wins on social media. I, I, mm -hmm. I think that yes. that, that it, to me, I love seeing that myself on social media. If someone closes on a deal, particularly if there's a story in there, but how maybe they overcame a challenge or, or something. And there's a little bit of value that, that the person looking at it can get. I love seeing those stories as well. So I think that's a great point by Bev. And then a question from Pat and Pat, I apologize. I think it was your question that I missed last week. And I, I, I felt terrible about that. I really am trying to build a, a community here where, where people feel that they can contribute and their voices are heard. And I felt awful when I noticed that, uh, that I didn't get to your question. So I apologize for that again. Uh, great interview guys. Uh, what's your advice for finding investors as a first time syndicator? How do I find investors? How do I approach them? And do I need to tie up property before talking to investors? Uh, that, that, that's a great question. I, I think we can actually jump into this before we start talking about the investment metrics as well, because sure. uh, for people that are that are syndicating deals, this, this is the huge component to it. They they not only need to find properties, but they need to find uh, capital partners that are going to finance it as well. So a uh, great question, Pat, and I'll hand it over to Kevin. Yeah, no, it is a great question. You know, the good thing about where we're at in history or, you know, at this point in time in history is that there's more liquidity in this marketplace than there probably ever has been, you know, since we've all been alive, they're watching this interview. Right. And so there is a lot of money, you know, chasing a safe home and real estate seemingly is a very safe uh, hedge against inflation. And so there's a lot of money out there trying to flow into investments. And so if you can be that conduit, then everybody wins. And so um, th that's, that's a good problem to have. Uh, with that being said, you know, um, I, I'll give you my opinion on, on how to find investors, right? There's investors out there, but I, I think the, 
um, the important thing to know, first and foremost, and again, this is just my opinion here. I think it's incredibly important for one to um, to always prove their concept or their business um, business model. Um, if it's syndicating multifamily, if it's syndicating industrial, whatever that means, uh, is to prove their own concept and risk their own capital before going out and actually pulling in, you know, third party capital from, you know, limited partners, passive investors, what have you. Um, and so I just, I'll, I'll put that out there and that's not necessarily the, the right or the wrong. Um, but like, I, I think that's important because ultimately it's a huge responsibility, um, that, that comes on your shoulders when you start, when you create a security and you bring capital in from outside parties. And so, um, uh, and so I, I again, I just, I'll, I'll expand upon that point a little bit. I think, when you when you take that approach, if you, I'll use multifamily as an example, uh, just because again that's similar to the space that we're in. You know, anything more than one unit's a multifamily. So let's say that you have an intent to go out and and syndicate hundred plus unit apartment complexes. Well, you surely can't take one of those down on your own. I'm assuming you don't have the capital to do one of those on your own, and so uh, you would you would need capital partners. But why not? Why not if you if you have some capital of your own? Why not start with a four unit property? You know, one that has a value add component to it. Um, four units are beautiful because you can get FHA financing. So the financing is a much more attractive uh, for the most part on that type than it would be once you get to the five units and above. Again, I don't know if these classifications are the same in, in Canada, uh, Chad. So um, you know, very similar. Yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, but start with a four unit property. The, the same value add plan. That, that's that, that's going to be your stick. Is a I'm a value add multifamily investor. I I find. Uh, opportunities with below market rents, um, operational inefficiencies that I intend to fix, lower the expenses, you know, increase rents, you know, after remodeling units, um, and you know, take it from a C plus to a B minus property, right? Like, if that's what the plan is, why not just do that same thing with a smaller, you know, four unit, eight unit, twelve unit, whatever, whatever you can manage on your own, and document every step of the process and knock it out of the park. The, you know, the, the better that you knock that one out of the park and document the entire process, the easier time you're going to have using that as a case study when you go to raise capital for that next larger opportunity. Now, I know that that might be the, the slow path because you just want to dive in and start doing bigger deals today. And so I'd say that's one way. And the other way that I've seen to be very successful for folks is you know, look at it as a team sport. Don't look at it of how can I attract all the investors I need to do this on my own. I want to be the sole sponsor. Why not you know, team up, find others in your, they don't have to be local to you, but find others that are in your same business that have skill sets that are complementary to your own, whatever your, yours might be, and figure out how you can add value to that team. Uh, what, again, I don't know what your, your respective skill sets are, but I'm sure there's something that's unique about you that you can be, bring to another respective team of, of sponsors. You know, maybe it's a group of one, two or three other folks that are looking to also syndicate multifamily. You guys have all, you all each have your own respective networks. You all bring different skill sets to the table. Look at it as a team so that you don't have to think about well, how do I raise $3 million or how do I raise 5 million? Well, what if you only had to raise 500,000 and you could be a bigger part of a deal? Now your resume, you know, your resume, you know, doesn't just have a 12 unit property, but it's got a hundred unit property, but you did it with your team. And ultimately, you could do much, much more as a team um, and, and once you get into these bigger deals than you can as an individual. And so just, again, my opinion on two different ways that you can you'll get in there and, and attract investors, because ultimately what's going to happen is you need to you need to prove the concept before investors start coming to you and actually start you know seeking you out to put their money with. Like you need to get them excited about something. And um, I have found that actually a real track record, like something that you can refer to of what you've already done works a lot better than just hypothetical scenarios. And so. Um, 
and that, that you know, going speaking to the team, if those other three syndicators that you're going to team up with, let's say that they've already done a deal or two, so they've got a little bit of a track record. Mm -hmm. So you get to actually ride the coattails a little bit, right? You bring value to their team, whatever that might be, um, whatever your unique skill set is. But ultimately, you get to ride coattails of someone that's maybe already built a little bit of a track record. Now that track record, if you're doing deals together, that is seemingly your track record as well. Again. Um, a little bit of gray area there, but anyway, that that's that's how I've seen folks get into the space that are brand new, get into syndications and start attracting capital to their investments. I can't believe how much value you just packed into that answer. I I, I would encourage people <laughs> to go back and listen to that. Your your mission statement that you ad libbed on there had had so much awesome insight into what someone could easily convey on on how they would want to uh, start up a, a syndication and and what they would be conveying. So that that was awesome. I that was such a great answer on that. So so thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I see a couple questions came in from uh, from TCS uh, Wyatt. If you don't mind pulling those up. Uh, hello, great interview. Thanks for that. Uh, what's the pricing for mobile parks in your target geography going in yield and stabilized yield? Hmm. Is debt still providing positive leverage? I, I think we could actually, maybe this is a perfect segue. And, and thanks for the question on that. Let, let's jump into this is, is how are you, how are you targeting deals that fit into your area? And, and how do you do it? Again, we'll go from that 30,000 foot view uh, on how you would quickly look at a deal because you just you can't spend a couple hours yeah. writing underwriting every deal you have to eliminate some off the bat so how do you go through that process of looking at them from a high level and then deciding whether which ones are worth diving into further and we'll get to some of those questions about like a go, going in yield and a stabilized yield uh and the positive leverage uh, as well yeah well first and foremost like the initial filter we have is like is it in a is it in a market that we'd consider you know that that's that's on our list right and if it's not we just kick it out right away. Uh, don't don't even give it much more time than that. Um, if it's if it's in a you know a, a market that we like that we would ultimately like to own in or maybe we already own in, we'll take a deeper look. But you know, we never very rarely do ever do a full model of, of a deal like mobile home parks. They're fairly simplistic in nature for the most part. Um, you know, they've got some you know unique nuances that are associated with them here and there. But generally speaking, we can normally do a back of the napkin. Um, and we've kind of got a quick evaluator we built on Excel, you know, but it's, I can almost get there with the back of the napkin. I mean, it's a fairly basic formula. Um, but ultimately we just do a real quick and dirty on it to see, you know, if it's within that 10, you know, if, if we can arrive at roughly 10% or close to 10% of uh, what a real valuation might be once we actually model the entire thing out. And um, if, if, we, if it falls within the parameters of like, you know, going in cap rates, uh, we normally don't look at going in cap rate. The only reason being is that mobile home parks mostly very rarely or very rarely are you ever looking at a full stabilized asset. You know, and again, it's a unique asset class. It's becoming consolidated. And so more and more institutions are coming in and professional um, investors and private equity. And so, but there's still a lot of mom and pops. There's still, still a lot of fragmentation in the marketplace. And so what that means is that there's a lot of inefficiencies in a lot of the assets that we look at. And so going in cap rate is somewhat irrelevant to us because, um, you know, we can very quickly see that the market rents are, you know, the 30% below market. Um, you know, the owner's running all of his expenses through the property. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it just, it, it's not operating as a professional would operate. And so that the cap rate based on their current NOI is not relevant to the immediate changes that we would put into place within literally 90 days of owning the asset. And so 
we always kind of look at like what's a 90 day cap rate, you know, based on like the immediate changes that we're ultimately going to make. But um, back to the original question is, you know, how do we do the, you know, how do, how do we look at it and how do we filter out the good from the bad? But we'll, we'll just literally do that, you know, quick and dirty back the napkin, you know, if it fits within a, the general price point or, you know, where we think the value might be and what they're asking, you know, we'll actually model the entire thing out. But what I found today, what's been more common, if it's coming from a broker, that is, is that a lot of times they're not priced, which makes, I, I don't like, I don't like playing that game, but we do anyway, we participate. Um, that makes it a lot more challenging for us. We kind of got to like, we, we got to, we got to, you know, put our put our pencils uh you know put our pencils in the sharpener and sharpen them up as much as possible without trying to overpay for it and uh still seemingly get a decent opportunity and that, that's been really challenging over the past two years i would tell you that mobile home parks have gotten a lot of attention and there's a limited supply it's a very interesting asset class because there's uh, it's only, it's the only asset class that has a diminishing supply and so there's actually more parks that are getting you know redeveloped or torn down or you know just getting shut down than there are being built and so that number is slowly dwindling down while there's more competition coming in to buy them and so um we've had a much more challenging time buying from brokers over the past two years uh, because we literally get outbid um quite often uh, uh whereas going direct to owner we've got a lot more flexibility you know not, not a lot of uh, competition coming in value for that same deal and um, are able to you know strike what we feel is a much fairer price point for that asset um I don't know if that answered your question or not, but I mean, as far as like the initial underwriting, I mean, like the initial back to it, the initial filter is like the market. Kick it out if it's not even that marketplace. If it's in respect of market, we do a quick and dirty on it. If it's with a broker, we, we submit an LOI no matter what. We try to get as close as we can, submit an LOI. That gets us even in consideration. We'll model it out from there. If that's like far away from, you know, if we offer 13 million and their target was like 17 and a half, well, guess what? I mean, I know that we can't find you know, I, we, we can't close that Delta between those two numbers. It's just, it's too big for us. Um, and so we won't move, we won't go, we won't go any further thereafter, but uh, we're never doing a full underwriting unless we think that we're literally within like 10% um, of, of where we think the value is at and, and what the seller is hoping to achieve on that property. At that point, we'll literally, we'll take a couple hours. We'll throw it into a 10 year uh, pro forma model it out, really dig deep into comps, uh, really dig deep into the operational efficiencies and, figure out where we can trim things out um, and, 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 and how this will realistically look within our, our operations. So um, don't know if that answered the question, but I'll, I'll stop there to see if there's any clarifying questions. Yeah, that certainly answered my question. And I know he, he had a follow-up uh, one as well. Uh, and, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but I, I want to touch on that point you made about a going in cap rate, because I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, that for the most part, a going in cap rate in today's market is largely irrelevant. Like you can you can use those numbers and you can say, okay, well, here's the NOI, here's what I have to pay for it, here's here's a rough cap. But that's not taking into account so many other factors. And industrial real estate market is a perfect example of this. Is you could get a going in cap uh, with a with a lease with a year remaining on it, but if that's twenty percent below market, the, the going in cap is is largely irrelevant because you're gonna you're gonna reposition that asset uh, in the near future. You might even be able to add more value to it. So I, I agree with you. Completely completely is that that going in cap is less less maybe relevant isn't even the right word but it, it has less value than yes. than what some of these more like yield specific metrics can can reveal so i do want to get get your sense on like what you're looking at on an irr basis what you're looking at on a stabilized cap basis uh, but let's get to the other question first 
because I think this is this is important for for every asset class, but if specific to to mobile home parks, what what kind of capex capital expenses do you usually implement in your in your mobile parks? And, and thanks again for the great questions. Yeah, I mean, as far as like on, on an annual basis, um, in, in, as far as uh, capex and just operating expenses, or I guess um, I try to get clarity there as to to what that means. Is it just on a, on an annual basis? What are our typical um, operational expenses look like? Like what percentage of total gross income? I'm guessing like what you would be looking and he can clarify here uh, if I don't explain this well, but I'm guessing he's looking at like what, what type of improvements do you immediately, immediately need to make? Like, do you need to repave yeah. uh, gotcha. the, the, okay. is your asphalt or do you need to redo the concrete? Uh, like anything structural uh, to the, and I'm guessing you you don't actually own the the homes themselves. You just sometimes own, we do, yeah. Sometimes no, no do. we do, yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, um, you know, we wouldn't own homes, but again, you know, this model has has kind of it's morphed over the years. Back when mobile home parks were built, you know, a lot of these parks were built 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, for the most part, they were just you know, developer would come in and build the infrastructure, and then homeowners would go buy their mobile homes or trailers, and they would essentially rent the lots, and they would own the homes and. Uh, very rarely did you see a, a rental model to where the park actually owned units. Well, that's it's shifted a lot over the years and it's shifted uh, sometimes by accident, sometimes on purpose. You know, as far as what I mean by that is like we'll buy a property that's been owned by the same owner for the last 30 years. Maybe 30 years ago, it was 100 percent you know resident owned homes. So the park didn't own any of those homes. Well, you know, over the first you know decade or two, some folks might have they might have passed away. Um, their heirs didn't really want that mobile home. And so now you got this home sitting there. They're not inexpensive to move uh, or to get rid of. And, and it might be a perfectly good home. And so what I've seen a lot of times either that that park will either take that back and try to resell it or they might just turn it into a rental. And they might have found that that rental model, um, you know, fits their business model well and they might have accumulated uh, a couple dozen of them over the next decade or so and so a lot of times we'll buy a park that started off as 100 resident owned and now it's maybe got 10 15 20 sometimes more um, park owned units in there and then the other side of that is uh the intentional side i've seen many business models nowadays uh, i wouldn't say that this is our business model but um it, it, it works depending on exactly what you're looking to achieve is you're buying a park that's got a hundred let's say it's got a hundred lots in it uh, let's, and let's say 50 of those are occupied with resident-owned homes. Let's say the remaining 50 lots, maybe it was uh, in an expansion phase and those 50 lots are fully developed, but they're vacant. There's nothing on them. All the infrastructure is there, but there's no home on them. So you have two options, either wait for homeowners to come in and fill those homes in, which is a could be a slow process, or being the owner of that park, you just go buy 50 homes. You know there's demand in that marketplace for rentals. You go buy 50 brand new homes, you bring them in, and now you've got a you know, 50 unit horizontal apartment complex that again, in the right marketplace has significant demand and uh, folks, instead of living in an apartment, they get now a three bedroom, whatever, you know, three bedroom, two bath mobile with their own little yard and parking space for their car for potentially less than that of a, you know, standard or conventional apartment. So again, long winded answer to your question there. Um, but, but typically the back, back to the original question about CapEx, what we typically do when we take over a park is, um, depending on what it needs, uh, you know, most of the time, um, you know, the infrastructure is fairly old in the community, you know, the water and sewer lines, electric. And so first and foremost, you know, before we even buy it, we'll, we'll do a, a you know, sewer scope on the sewer lines to see what they're made out of, to see the condition of them. Um, we'll dig deep into the electrical infrastructure, ensuring that, you know, we're not going to have a, ma a massive capital expenditure to uh, upgrade the electrical uh, thereafter. Same with the water lines, depending on if they're made out of like galvanized, 
um, which doesn't really hold up all that well. Um, you know, we'll just kind of build those things in. If it's needed, great. We'll put it into the budget. If it's not, we'll let it be. And uh, that won't be one of the improvements we'll make. But we, infrastructure is probably the most important and probably the most expensive of anything that could ultimately go wrong with the mobile home park. Because pretty much everything you see is either roads or it's under the ground, right? That, that That's of a cap, major CapEx expense. And so above ground, roads are probably the most common thing that we do roads and new signage, you know, so we'll go into a community, we'll re-asphalt the roads if they need it. Uh, we'll put a whole new signage package in, you know, entrance signs, directional signs, stop signs. We've kind of have our own company theme, like a brand that we've built over the years. So every park gets the same sign package so that they all, you know, look in unison to one another. Uh, trees are important. You know, a lot of owners skimp on trees. Uh, parks have a lot of trees get very expensive if they don't keep up with them. Um, and uh, so we'll go in and uh, do a massive amount of tree work, lifting trees up, taking old trees out that are a danger to falling on homes, what have you. Uh, and then lastly, speaking to the, the park owned homes, the ones that maybe the, the park acquired or inherited, however they came across them. A lot of times we'll go into a community where, you know, mom and pop operated, they, they acquired or inherited some of these homes. And, you know, maybe in the beginning they were able to turn these things and renovate them, get them rented, and then they lose the tenant and, they might be able to get it back online fast. Well, now they got a second home, a third home, a fourth, more than three years because the owner just didn't have the manpower and the wherewithal himself to actually keep up with that. And so with those, we literally hired five contractor crews, literally full five full-blown crews. They're in there renovating these homes, getting them uh, ready for sale or for rent. So those are the common improvements that we'll make uh, going into a new community. And then aside from that, we don't fix what isn't broken. And so if the on-site management is good, you know, the on-site manager, if they're good, um, if they're, they're the reason why that place is still ticking and, and doing great and, and attracts good residents, we'll keep them. A lot of times that is not the case. A lot of times that is one of the pieces that are broken. Um, and so for the most part, I see about 80% of the times we're having to um, hire and train new on-site management to uh, help facilitate, facilitate the takeover process. So, hmm. I, I hope that answered uh, the question, TCS. But if you have a, a follow-up one uh, or or just a, a clarifying question, feel free to add that into the chat. And and thanks for the question and the answer, uh, Kevin. Uh, we've got about five minutes left. I, I still want to get your sense on on stabilized cap rates and an internal mm -hmm. rate of return. And then uh, uh, Neil also had a question, uh, which we'll, maybe we'll end with Neil's question because I think that that's a, a good ending point. Uh, but so maybe we'll jump into your your some of your metrics on either a stabilized cash uh, cap rate on what you're looking for or your internal rate of return. And and I, I suspect a lot of people are familiar with that uh, terminology. I don't want to overly simplify it if you're not familiar with it, other than I'd, I'd strongly encourage you to get a, a strong grasp on IRR and, and net present value. Mm -hmm. But an IRR is, is really just your, your average compounded annually return, wh whether you're doing that on a call a 10 year projection or whether you're even looking back on it. So you owned a property for 10 years, you, you look at all your cash flows, you look at what you had invested into it. You can quickly calculate an IRR in Excel uh, in, in minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's just your average annual compounded return. So I, I'm very, I'm overly simplifying that term, but it's a very commonly used metric in commercial real estate. So uh, with that in mind, uh, your stabilized cap rate and your IRR, what are you, what are you typically projecting on that? Yeah. And the IRRs were in, and we always look at things on typically like a five to seven year hold, although, you know, we're long-term uh, holders. And so I, you know, we always like to, we, and we buy in funds. And so we buy multiple assets underneath one umbrella. Um, and, you know, over the years we'll, you know, kind of pluck out the ones that we don't feel are the best fit for one reason or another for long, long-term holds. 
Uh, we'll recapitalize the ones we want to hold for a long time and, and sell off the others, get it, you know, uh, investors, original equity back to them. And then, you know, in, you know, tend to ride off into the sunset with the remaining assets that might be in that uh, respective fund. But as far as projections, uh, like on our, our current fund today, you know, projections are in the, the 14 to 16% IRR. I can say historically, we've always, we've always been able to surpass that, but you know, times are different today than what they were two or three years ago, as far as, um, you know, uh, yields on, on pretty much any respective asset classes that are out there, mobile home parks, uh, uh, aren't foreign to, you know, compressed cap rates, um, you know, lots of competition value for that same asset class. And so as far as, um, you know, kind of the going in metrics of, you know, we look at, so we, we raise capital from high net worth individuals. We've got a blended cost of capital of just shy of 7%. So it's, I think it's like 6.76% when you blend the, uh, you know, the few different um, uh, investment classes together. And so that's, that's kind of like our first barometer. Like we need, so that we are not ultimately digging a hole, right? We need to be able to meet a minimum pref to our investors you know, we also have asset management fees and, and other operational expenses layered in there. But ultimately, that's kind of like our initial baseline. And we need to know that we can ultimately achieve that initial baseline within the first 12 months. And that, that like that's like a worst case scenario. Like it should be happening day one or shortly thereafter. But worst case scenario, if it's a phenomenal asset in an incredible marketplace that we know has a long runway ahead of it, um, you know, Worst case, it needs to be, you know, 12 months span of time that we need to be able to hit that initial threshold. And thereafter, I'd say our stabilized, stabilized cap rate is somewhere in the, you know, the seven and a half ish, 8%, you know, range, you know, once we've executed the entirety of the business plan. But, um, you know, historically, you know, we, we've sold a couple assets recently, assets that we've owned for, you know, roughly three years. And it's, and I don't like even sharing historical metrics. The reason why is over the last couple of years, the rising tide has lifted all boats. Yeah. And, you know, one could, one that, literally doesn't know the front of his hand from the back of his hand probably could have made really good money in real estate, right? If they just bought something, if they overpaid for it three years ago and sold it in the past six months, they probably would have come out ahead. Even if they made every mistake in the world in the middle. Right. And so our historical <laughs> uh, returns or IRRs on, on most of the assets that we've sold have been, you know, you know, we've, we've hit in the thirties and 40% uh, and, and some that are even higher than that. Right. But um, we always like to be conservative going into these things and, uh, and knowing that, um, the tides will ultimately change at some point, and um, um, th those high, uh, uh, somewhat egregious returns might not always be the case. And so, again, 14, 60 percent is is what we projected. Feeling it's conservative, but very much in line with our business model, and knowing that we uh, can very comfortably hit that. Yeah, that, that very well said on that. And we are running to the end. Uh, so, uh, White, if you can pull up Neil's question real quick. Uh, what are the upsides to owning mobile parks rather than multifamily or commercial? I'm not actually going to get you to answer this. I'm going to leave this as a as a cliffhanger. And instead uh, of you answering it, I, I, where can people go to find out about your podcast where you talk about this extensively? Yeah, no, that I appreciate that. So you can you can find me at uh, cashflowinvestor.com. Um, there you'll have links to you know both. I just uh, launched a book recently. Uh, you also have links to my company, Sunrise Capital Investors, and uh, the podcast and everything else that we do. So cashflowinvestor.com is the best place to go. Okay, and uh, Beverly, thanks for putting the links. Uh, we put links to your uh, website and your uh, uh, LinkedIn description. So uh, I'd encourage everybody to go listen to your podcast. You put out an awesome show, uh, great resource. Loved everything you had to say on this, and and I'd love to continue the conversation uh, down the road. And and I'm sure there's a ton more things that we could easily dive into on that. But uh, ultimately, I really do appreciate your time and insights on this, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. It's been a lot of fun. 
Okay. Well, we'll certainly keep in touch when I'm in clear water, we're going to get together and, uh, and have coffee or lunch. That sounds like a plan. I'm buying. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Thanks again, everyone. And thanks for, uh, everyone that uh, tuned in and asked questions. Really do appreciate, uh, you taking the time to listen. So thanks everyone. Have a great day.